Kia ora, and welcome to the Maxim Institute podcast. My name is Jason, and I'm the communications manager at Maxim Institute. Today, we are celebrating the release of the latest edition of our annual magazine, Flint and Steel. This latest edition, Volume 9, is available right now at flintandsteelmag.com. As soon as you're finished listening to this podcast, you can jump over there and order to read over the summer. This year's edition is all about houses and homes. Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud, home to over 5 million people. But there's trouble here, a housing crisis on multiple fronts. We're told that we don't have enough houses. We can't seem to build them fast enough. Why? On top of that, not enough people can buy their own homes to get their foot onto the property ladder. We're crammed into cities with poor public transport and subpar infrastructure. This latest Flint and Steel explores all these issues and more. We ask some necessary questions. How did we get to this place? How can people achieve their dream of home ownership and retain their sanity? How might we repair the construction industry? What about global supply chains? How does our desire for land and place need to be tempered? What's it like to be homeless? Can we, or should we, change our culture so that we don't desire so much space? In many ways, we are ultimately trying to answer the question, what is home? On the 6th of December, we held an amazing launch event for the magazine. We hosted author Josie Pagani, whose article entitled The Place We Call Home is a wonderful exploration of what it means to have a home. She was in conversation with our executive director, Tim Wilson, and took questions from the audience. We hope that you enjoy this recording and get a sense of the great atmosphere in the room. We also hope that you'll head over to the website flintandsteelmag.com and grab yourself a copy of the latest edition of Flint and Steel, All Roads Lead to Home. The piece that you've written for us, um, as I was reading it, it... um, it not only informed me and, and made me think, but it made me feel. And, and that's a rare ability in, in writing. Uh, I wonder if you could begin the conversation that we're going to have. We, we want to talk about uh, what it is that's unique about our attitude to homes, housing and land in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, but we're going to come at it... Uh, by leading off Josie's, um, Josie's piece. And Josie, I wonder if you would read uh, some of that piece that you wrote, and that will get us started in this conversation. Now, before you jump in, um, I do want to say there are two phases to this. So Josie and I will talk, uh, and then you, Josie, and I will talk. So think of questions. There'll be a Q&A afterwards, uh, and um, that's where... And don't be afraid of curly questions because you have someone here who can think on her feet. Uh, so the curlier, the better. There may even be a prize. I thought you said, I thought you said girly then. I was oh, like, no. <laughs> no, I must, I must learn. To, see, this is yeah. the broadcasting thing. It's like yeah. you're not enunciating. <laughs> I, I, curly with a C. So please, Josie, if you would begin. Oh, well, kia ora, everybody, and thank you for having me. It's absolutely lovely to be here. It's, I think, what you do with flint and steel, and I didn't realise the origin of that, the sparks, and um, I love that because debate, and we've been talking about this around the room, debate is so hard at the moment to have a really honest debate where you play the ball, not the man. Um, and I think what you guys do with this is you give people like me permission to think about some big ideas that you don't usually get time for. And it's, it's so valuable. I really um, value it because, 
you know, when you said, oh, we want you to write something about home, I was thinking, oh, I've got nothing to say about that. <laughs> Three waters, yep, uh, um, co-governance, uh, RNZ, TVNZ merger. But then when I sat down and, and, and really thought deeply about it and, and you kind of, you know, pray about it really and, and try and understand what this concept of home and house means and um, suddenly there was just this well of stuff. And then I Google as well, which is always um, a mistake. So a lot of the facts in this I hope are true because <laughs> I Googled the origin of the word home and the origin of the word house. Um, but yeah, and, and I, I must say I did once Google for RNZ when I had to do a Jim Morris show about um, I wanted to say, what have you been thinking about for the week? And I said, oh, I've been thinking about um, national anthems and how violent the words are and how awful. And I said, for example, you know, and I then read a clip from the Israeli national anthem and the Palestinian national anthem, and I got them round the wrong way because oh. I Googled it. <laughs> oh, way to establish your credibility, so, Jason. Anyway, yeah, sorry about that, yeah. So, yeah, Googling is not a good research tool. Um, anyway, I thought I'd start uh, just by reading the, a personal clip from this and then, and then we'll talk. And I'm looking forward to all of us talking, actually. So this is a bit about um, home may exist primarily in our imaginations. I grew up in a small Cotswold village in the UK. We were the only outsiders. London was as foreign to my village friends as New Zealand. I never doubted I belonged. Memories of your childhood home echo through your life like a dream. Even if the years were unhappy, I can smell the fresh leaves and the loamy soil of the blackberry bushes where we hid in games and the dusty taste of the air in the tight tunnels we built in the hay bales. We experience our childhood homes physically. Emotions are remembered as smells, tastes and textures. This year, I returned to the village my old best friend and I went looking for our childhood camp in an abandoned pigsty. As kids, we'd found an old carpet, stacked up some books from our bedrooms and laid out an old tea set to make our camp look more like a home. Forty years later, the oversized Alice in Wonderlands that we were, we stick our big heads through the door of our rediscovered sty. <gasps> Everything is exactly as we left it 40 years ago. A plastic teacup has fallen to the ground. Only the trees around the sty have grown around our memories. For a moment, I fantasise about buying back my old house. I could return home. But beware nostalgia. We come and we go from many homes in our lives. We leave a house, a town, a country. And each time we leave, something of ourselves behind, while our homes follow us like shadows, just out of vision. You can't go back. If you must leave a place you've lived in and loved and where all your yesteryears are buried deep, writes author Beryl Markham, leave it quickly. Never believe that an hour you remember is a better hour because it has passed. If you go back to an old home after the people are gone, you see what is not there anymore. I looked at my friend, still there with me. We walked away. And a great evocation of that sense of a home being a place of relationship and belonging. What is it then that makes a house? 
as against a home. Mm. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Because when I googled, um, the definition of, of house comes from this old English word hus, hus, um, and it relates to the word to hide. So, you know, hiding is a temporary thing, right? Mm. So a house is actually a temporary thing. I think the real question is what makes the home, you know, and home is, um, the old English word is, is ham. And, you know, it was a permanent structure. Mm. And for some bizarre reason, this was a fact, I couldn't, I delved into this, but temporary structures tend to be round in history and civilization, and permanent structures tend to be square. And I couldn't find any explanation as to why that would be, except that a round structure maybe looks like a tent or a, a you know, temporary um, structure. But yeah, what makes a house? I mean, because it is very physical, isn't it? And yeah. I, get, I guess for all of you here, if you, if you think about your childhood home, you immediately think about the physical nature of it, you know, because as adults, we don't tend to hide in the wardrobe or um, roll around on the floor <laughs> you know so you yeah. really do inhabit your home and your house as a child and and I do think that that sort of essence of home you carry with you even and as I say even an unhappy home this isn't about mm. just having a happy home um, because I think it's interesting that home can be outside of the house as well it can be the village or um, it can be a sense of where your marae is or mm. your your kind of your history your ancestry or just your land mm. so it's a place in a sense of nourishment whereas say a house is a place where you conceal yourself in yeah I thought that was really interesting mm. the origin of the word house mm. relates to hide and the other um, and also the other sorry I'm gonna, yeah. I might be going to cut your lunch but you also can cut my lunch it, it refers to um, animal hide you're so much nicer when you're not on the radio <laughs> usually we're <laughs> <laughs> so polite <laughs> No, um, carry on. Cut my uh, lunch. Okay. Well, now, now <laughs> it seems that I have to be more impolite. Is, yeah. the, is the mechanism I'm getting? Um, no, but it's also mm. uh, I think there's a reference in your um, in your piece to animal hide. So yeah. where something uh, there's right. a sense yeah. of de of deadness in a house yeah. where there's life in a home. Yes. Yes. And again, that, that the the reference to to hide and animal hide. Again, you know, ancient civilization we used to hide in the animal fur. Um, I mean, and that sense of permanence in a home. I mean, when you think about home, it isn't just the house, as I say. And, and I think that that's something, that need to belong mm. is something deeply embedded in us as humans. And, and you might find it in a, in a church community. You might find it in, um, you know, I was, I was curious about the Japanese apartment structures where there's tiny apartments in Japan and, and the living areas are often communal, you know. So you go back to sleep in your little home, but your real home is these communal areas that you share. Um, and, and certainly I think we've lost a lot of that sense of um, communal living together and belonging, haven't we? Mm. I mean, people don't go to church in the way that they did. They don't join sports clubs in the way that they did. Um, There's an epidemic of, certainly in the United States, which may be a precursor for uh, countries like New Zealand, there's, there's a well-documented epidemic of loneliness um, and, and, and mental illness um, that is, is predicated on, on that loneliness. And the polarisation that we're all living through now, this era of, of such divisions and kind of tribal um, politics, I mean, that, that's a lot about it too, right? Because when you... You know, like when I go to mass, um, 
I've got Jim Bolger in front of me or behind me and, and, you know, Harry who lives in a container shed down the road and we're all in a line and we're all equal and we're all butting up against each other and mm. you, don't, you don't get exposed to people who are not like you as much as you did physically, you know, mm. and we all get stuck in the sort of social media um, holes. But, and I think that's a real problem, mm. you know, and I'm not sure what we do about that, really. A problem that uh, I think the um, and, and certainly Maxim has um, has done research on the constitutional ramifications of COVID response, which has produced increased polarisation. I thought it was uh, really interesting in your piece where you talk about the effect um, the homeless in in the capital city. Um, the, the effect they experienced when the protesters were in Parliament. Can you tell, tell us all a bit, a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, was there anyone here who was at the protests in any capacity? You don't have to <laughs> declare your reason for being there. <laughs> but did anyone see it physically? Yeah. And, and, and the thing that you noticed was what a community it was, right? And, you know, the, the real revelation to me was that the homeless in Wellington, and you kind of know, you get to recognise the same people who are living on the streets. They gravitated to the protest where they were fed, they got free clothes, but more than that, they had a sense of um, being accepted and, and belonging somewhere. And a lot of the, you know, City Mission, a lot of the homeless organisations were saying, um, Instantly, it was like homelessness solved in Wellington for the month of the protests. Now, you know, what, regardless of what you think of the protests and, the, and, and what happened, um, that is something we should learn from. How is it that they had that huge sense of belonging? What do you think was at the heart of that? What, what was it that they were drawn to? Um, acceptance. There were, there were no questions. It was just like, yep, come in, you're part of us. Mm. And um, without even thinking it without even overthinking it, which yeah. <laughs> what we're all meant to be doing. But, um, yeah, it was just that sense, I think, of being unconditionally accepted, no questions. Mm. And that's what doesn't happen usually. So mm. usually you're on the streets and people walk by and, you know, you've got the city mission and others coming in, but um, suddenly they had a role to play. They were helping to peel the potatoes or, you know... Mm. Um, it was hysterical. I mean, only in New Zealand would you have a political protest where you're planting basil. <laughs> it's like, it's like, and I, I, walked, I think that's a good sign. It's a good sign, yeah, yeah. And I walked through the protest every day on my way to work, and the thing that struck me, apart from the sense of sort of community, um, was how working class it was. You know? mm. and, and so when the demonising of people in the protest, and yes, it ended very badly, and, you know... I'm, there was a lot of, on the fringes, there was a lot of nasty stuff. But the idea, you and I were talking about this earlier today, the idea that that was a protest of white supremacists, well, you know, those white supremacists did a pretty good hucker. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's so true, and I think, um, you know, the, um, we're talking about a place of belonging. Um, when that is torn away, people search for belonging in in other areas, in other modes. And so that's, you know, in, in the sense of that, that polarisation that we're, we're discussing occurs because people want to be, be somewhere and they want to be somewhere where they feel safe. I know I'll feel safe around people who agree with me all the time. Well, that's not actual safety. 
that's a different thing. That's almost uh, that's a kind of infantilism. Um, so so I think that was the, I was really interested in in your view as someone who and and the other aspect of this is we actually for Flint and Steel we went and interviewed homeless people living on the streets of Wellington and it's fascinating. Um, I I guess I learned this because I used to live in town and I would uh, often talk with homeless people and. Um, their stories were always compelling. They were always honest, unless it involved money, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but also they were somewhat shaming because you think about, um, you know, it's like we're in a society, we live in a society where the homeless will find refuge in a protest. There's something wrong here and we need to fix it. I want to pull back a little bit to the the, the the New Zealand attitude to houses and housing because it's not just a place of belonging or a place of concealment. It's an investment, Josie. It's, it, yeah, so to go back even further, I think for, for, for all of us, you know, as New Zealanders, but particularly, I think, European immigrants who came, you know, in the 1840s, that there was a real drive to leave the crowded um, houses and, you know, tenement Polluted, buildings. Polluted, festering, and, horrible. Yeah, and, yeah. We, and we were all descended, European New Zealanders are all descended from the spare, you know, the, the son that doesn't inherit, you know, the wealth. So there was a real desire to come out. The idea of having a quarter acre was just built into the DNA of why you were coming to New Zealand. Um, because you didn't have to be a farmer to have a quarter acre and grow your own veggies and feel like you had a bit of land. Um, so I think that that sense of, of having a, a house and land is really deeply embedded in us as New Zealanders. But yeah, it's become something that um, is also an investment. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, we live in a little lifestyle block up in Kapiti and we've got, you know, over 15 years we've had chickens, sheep, horses, um, a cow. We've managed to kill most of them because we're really bad at it. But I do think that that, <laughs> not the horse. Did you eat um, them? We did eat the sheep, yeah. Okay. But, and the sheep had lambs, which they do, apparently, if, if you leave them in the field. And um, they <laughs> the lambs, and I bought the kids out young, and it was, they were so cute, and we, we named, they said, you can name the lambs, and they named them Lucky and Brave, and they were dead by the morning. <laughs> so, but I do think that sent that feeling of having, mm. wanting to have a bit of land is yeah. so important to us. But, but you're right, yeah. I mean, it, um, housing has now become investment, and there's... there's I think housing is, is our kryptonite. It's actually at the, at the core of all our problems in New Zealand, whether it be um, the fact that that money people invest in housing isn't going to the productive sector, it's not investing in new businesses and innovation and so on, it's going into housing. Um, but also inequality, um, the fact that you, know, you can't afford to get a house, uh, the renting, we don't have a culture of renting like in the UK where you can rent for your life and you rent a really nice house. Mm. So, yeah, it is our kryptonite, and I think it's at the heart of all our problems. Um, and the fact that, and you and I may disagree on this, but the fact that, that income from the profit of housing is not taxed, I think is a problem, because we're not treating all income the same. And so, you know, you're, you're exacerbating the gap between those who own assets, or those trying to, and who are at the top of the hill, and those trying to get up the hill. <laughs> so we're actually penalising 
people who don't have assets? Well, I think there's, as as um, as I've seen in, um, in in many people's lives, the way to get ahead is to buy a house and then to buy another house. Um, and you compare the returns on the stock market um, with the in, uh, the inflation of house prices. And as um, as Jason has 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 noted in his case of the construction industry, there are so many different. I mean, you look at the consent regulations, the amount of land available, etc. It's it's a hydra headed beast, and we need to we need to cut the heads off the hydra. Perhaps that's, progressively. That's so true, and I think. Part of the problem is successive governments, but particularly this government, they've had a real problem with, I think, problem definition around housing. So they came into government 2017 and went, um, right, Kiwi build. Well, what's the problem that Kiwi build is solving? Is it the lack of social housing? I mean, I think the waiting list for social housing has tripled since yeah, 2017. Since 2017. So was it social housing? Was it affordability? Was it the, uh, the cost of rent? Which was it? Because all of those have different solutions right yeah. so they tried to solve all of that with a really blunt tool which failed dismally which was kiwi build um, so that's the first thing what is the problem in housing we're trying to solve and let's do that mm. i think it's social housing i think that would make a huge difference so you're saying a, a, a program to build social housing um in a in a way that you see i look at some of the um kainga order the new houses that are going up, they're bowling a lot of the apartments where we used to live in Onihanga and building new intensive apartments. And those places, are, they don't look like they're built with the notion of home in mind uh, and community in mind. They're places for people to perch. We are really rubbish at architecture in New Zealand. Are we, is there any architects here? <laughs> just offended you. Um, Stand but, up at once. <laughs> yeah, leave the room. Um, but we, I mean, it's like whenever you go overseas, I, I don't know how you feel, but when I come back, first of all, I think, wow, what a beautiful country I live in. It's so green. And then I think, what rubbish houses, you know, <laughs> buildings. They look like a off of wind would just blow them over. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we just, we don't have, you're right about the intensification. I think that's more of a problem of, of design and architecture. Mm. I think there's a, we're in danger of a real generation divide here of where if, if we don't let go of the quarter acre dream um, and, and have the option for that, but also do intensification, we're, we're shutting a whole generation out of housing, you know, generation rent. Mm. And that's look. That I think that's a longer conversation than than we'll we'll have time for tonight. We'll do it on the huddle. We'll do it on the huddle. <laughs> and um, well, once you're through with today, if yeah, you know, I'm almost story. through. Um, um, but and we'll be rude to each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think there, there's definitely you know I, I do certainly talk to um, to uh, say people under forty, which you may not think that's young. Um, some of you guys from the LDP, you'll think, what, that's old, come on. Um, but I will, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, say is young. And they have a strong sense of that, gen that I will never be able to own a house. Um, and there's, there's a kind of futility and a loss of, um, or, or a hopelessness um, that prevents them advancing in their lives. So when you, when you don't feel hopeful about the future, you won't make decisions based on, uh, you'll say, well, maybe I can, do I need to get married? Do I need to have kids? You know, I don't feel optimistic about the future. And, and I hate to break it to you, but you've got four children now, Tim, if <laughs> you realise. No, I'm three. well aware I've got four children. <laughs> 
um, and and I'm thinking, how do we help? How do I help three children get a house? You know, um, and another interesting point about that, which I thought was uh, really struck me, blimmin' tragic actually, that um, through the MIQ phase, where we were basically shutting out up to a million New Zealanders, many of them young, younger mm. New Zealanders, and um, I have a, a an old friend who's young, um, and he. He's Māori, and he wanted to come back, couldn't get back. He will not come back to New Zealand now because he felt that his home betrayed him and his sense of mm. um, having the place that you can come unconditionally. This is my safe place. This is my safe place. This is where I'm accepted for what, whoever I am, whatever's happened. They've closed the door on me. I will never come home. They have rejected me. Mm. That's and what MIQ did. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, and that that also touches on some of the wider notion of 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 New Zealanders going abroad to find home. I certainly know that um, that when I left to go to New York, uh, I wanted to be an internationalist. But um, you are, you are, you are. I'm not. <laughs> a de- no, a decade a decade in New York taught me that I'm actually the thing that I least wanted to admit that I am, which is a kid who grew up in Whanganui. And used to bike no hands along Glasgow Street. Yeah, on my kids speed. don't bike no hands anymore. Okay, What's so we're all biking home <laughs> no hands. All right, got it. Um, look, I think you've touched on something which is very important: is the sense of belonging that is a crucial aspect of home. Can you can you just, I guess, take that sort of package it up for us. What is it about home? Is it, is it because you said the sense of um, acceptance? So a home is somewhere that doesn't shut the door on you. Uh, a home is somewhere perhaps that contains your memories and your essential relationships um, from that piece that you read. Is there anything else you would add to that de- definition of what a home is? That's really good. <laughs> um, the thing, only thing I would add to that is I, I, writing this piece, I sort of discovered that maybe home is a place we're always going towards. And because we've all had so many homes, um, and we will through our lifetime, right? And I remember when we bought our house 15 years ago, and the couple in their 70s were selling it, and they were going into a retirement village, and and I I, I just I remember just looking at them, and when they handed over the keys, and I just burst into tears because I realised that for them they were leaving the place that they had made home, and it was their home that we were walking into, and we were about to make it our home, and our kids were going to grow up there, and. And they were absolutely lovely. They felt such a sense of completion about leaving that house. They'd been there for 20 years. Mm. Leaving that house, they were ready to move on. And I thought, wow, I hope I'm as ready as that when I have to move on to the next home I have. And so I think, yeah, that sense of home being a place that, you, that you're moving towards. So it is, it is something that we carry inside us, I think. Mm. The only thing is you can't go back. <laughs> you can go forward, but you can't go back. Thank you so much, Josie. Well, that's the part where Josie and I talk. Now it's your your turn to earn the platters that we've been serving you. (laughs) I'm just saying. And questions from the floor. And what will happen is um, we're in a pub, so it's pub rules. You can put your hand up. Uh, say your question, I'll repeat it because we're recording this, we're going to do a podcast and then Josie will answer it or maybe I might or you might answer it I might misapprehend it and (laughs) give you an answer myself Um, fake news yeah I'll just fake news it and then um, 
then we'll do that. So um, don't all rush to do it, but put your hands up. I want some questions out of you guys. Josie, if you're reflecting on the nature of a home, do you think there would be a meaningful difference if there was a home policy rather than a housing policy? Yes, because no one ever turns up to their local mayor saying, I've got a problem with my housing. <laughs> like, people don't talk about infrastructure. They talk about roads and the potholes and the, the fact they can't get to work on time and um, the trains don't run on time. And no one ever talks about housing except in Wellington. They talk about homes. So, yeah, absolutely. So in Wellington, they talk about housing and everywhere else they talk about homes. Yeah, Wellington is consciously uncoupled from the rest of the country, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, I think so. I think that would, then you would start from a sense of, of what do we need to do to, for, for people to belong and for communities to be strong. That's, you'd start from there. I think also there's, 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 if you get the language of the question right, you're a bit closer to getting the answer right. Uh, and so the word housing is bureaucraties. Yeah. Um, and, and it's the kind of thing that committees might address um, but no one ever goes home to, as you say. Um, and this is something that you also write about, is the bureaucratisation of our political process. Do you want to just unpack that a bit Thank more? Thank you too? for bringing that up, because that's uh, one of my absolute pet peeves. So um, fire away, Fire Josie. away, here I go, very briefly. Like I, I, in the piece, I think I quote, you know, that famous Norm Kirk quote in the 70s, which is just beautiful. I mean, it, it's to me, it sums up why you'd be in politics. Um, you know, everybody wants... Um, someone to love, somewhere to live, somewhere to work, and something to hope for. That, that was said by a politician. Like, can you imagine a politician saying that today? I mean, to me, he sounds like a Josie, just priest. be kind. No. <laughs> I don't even know what you mean by that. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a way in which I think the professionalisation of politics uh, as, a, as a career has taken us away from the moral crusade of politics. And that's why the bureaucraties, you know, if you, if you listen to a housing minister now, they'll say, you know, well, we're, in, we're, we're enabling a transition for our clients to, to transition effectively from motels to homes or something, you know. So, yeah, I, I pet peeve about the professionalism of politics. I think it's really undermined uh, the, the, the vocation Mm, mm. And it's something certainly that you observe, uh, or, or I, I observed the professional politician in the United States, and they are particularly disconnected from their communities because it's a job that takes you away from community, not one that in integrates you yeah. into communities. And I think that's something to up for our politics is that the, there's a lot of diversity of... of um, uh, gender, of ethnicity, and that's fantastic to see. There's very little diversity of opinion in, in the political sphere. And that's a problem. I disagree. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, I disagree with you agreeing. Um, but that, the problem with that is that you're not, again, you're not butting up against people who come from a different life experience. I remember when I worked for Jim Anderton many years ago, and, and uh, there was an MP there, John Wright, who I'm sure many of you don't remember, but um, and he was a panel beater, and we used to call him Dr. Wright, you know, and it was a joke because he was a panel beater. Um, but, you know, it was like, how many panel beaters are in Parliament now? Mm. They're all lawyers and teachers. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, so what's, I guess the question is, what's the part that landlords have to play in this um, 
in this matrix? It's hard because I do think there's some very good landlords out there and I know people, you know, real mum and dad investors who've bought a couple of places or, <clears throat> you know, an, a, an investment place and they're fantastic landlords. The, the issue, I think, <coughs> sorry, talking too much, the issue is that the, we have a very bad housing stock and, and you know, if we, don't, if we don't have good housing stock and we don't have ways of maintaining that stock or regulating that stock, then, then people end up living in very unhealthy environments. Now, I don't agree, I know, I, I can tell what you're thinking, I don't agree with the idea of the sort of warrant of fitness for houses because I know that most of the houses I've lived in and gone overseas and we've rented them out are perfectly livable, but they would not have passed mm. um, the strict kind of, you know, it has to be insulated, it has to this, that and the other. But I do accept that there is a problem with the rental stock that we have on, on compared to other countries. Yeah, look, um, we're in the position of um, we have an apartment in town that we rent out, um, but we're also renting the place that we live in. So we're tenants and landlords and as a landlord, um, I, would, I would comment that the Healthy Homes Initiative mm. is incredibly onerous and often a box-ticking um, exercise that has created a whole subcategory of contractors. Um, as a tenant who is worried about living in a damp house, uh, I have a different view. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I'm torn, you know. Um, you know, if, you, if your kids have got runny noses and they're running through the house, you're like, um, well, who can save me from this? So, so I, I, I haven't, I haven't um, uh, worked it out completely either. Um, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm kind of bipolar on the issue. I think there's a way of creating a culture of renting that's really positive. Um, mm. And certainly in the UK where I grew up, um, it was very normal to rent for many, many years, if not your whole life. And, um, there were, you know, there are housing trusts, there were really good council houses, um, it wasn't all the state, um, and, and there was good, you know, private sector um, properties available. And, and there was a culture of, of allowing people to rent and make it a home, you know, paint the walls, um, change things around, do a bit of a renovation, yeah. you know. Any more questions? Yes, Judy. Yeah, if I can translate, uh, Judy, that what you're saying is that you had an experience of um, many different houses and many different geographical locations around the world, but because of the family culture that was created by your parents, everywhere you went felt like home. And when we're trying to address the home housing issue, we're relying too much, we're conflating a house with a home without having that essential ingredient of what is it um, that is homely, uh, that is nurturing, that is safe, that makes a house a home. Is that a fair? Yeah. I totally agree with that. And I think uh, the, the, I end the piece with a, a, you know, what it's like to be in my home now, where you know, I came from a very broken home, pretty dysfunctional home, but grew up in a village where the whole village was my home. You know, I had safe places to go all over the village. So I felt like without having a, a, the perfect family, I did have a sense of home and safety and comfort. And it's been very important to me in my life to have a, um, a, a strong family unit and to my husband too, who also had quite a dysfunctional family. And so our kids have, you know, 
feel that we are the home. So I know that when we do leave our house, and we will one day, that wherever my husband and I set up, you know, tent will be the home <laughs> for exactly those reasons. But the, the thing I would add to what you said is that um, you're right, it's not just the house, it can be the community you're in, or it can be an extended family, or it can be some really strong friendship groups that you grow up around as kids. Um, but that's the problem we need to solve, you're right. I think, I think the emphasis on what separates a home from a house and the essence of those, those feelings that a functional and happy home um, is able to generate the sense of safety, the sense of not being rejected, um, and to some, in, in some measure too, uh, a longevity. This is a place where I can rest. Uh, that is the definition of a home. And, and I think that's why, um, I, you know, I talk, don't really go into it in detail, but I mean, you know, for some, it's, a, it's not a house at all. It's a marae, or it's where you feel like, okay, this is where I can be, where I belong. And, and um, you know, I lived up in Mutiti, way up north on the marae for, you know, almost a year. And it was that you could, you'd sleep on a different mattress every night, but I mean, we went up there permanently on, for a whole year. But, you know, you would, it didn't matter which mattress you slept on, you were still home. You were still somewhere where you were being accepted, where you were being, um, where, there were, where, where you had complete comfort and safety. One more, if it's quick, Dominic. Huh. Yeah, well, I came from a broken home, um, you know, I think divorces and um, various other dysfunctional things, and so did my husband. And, you know, I often think about, to personalise that, how did that affect me? And I think... Um, it affected me in the sense that I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to find a place I belong or, you know, adopting other people's families. I did that for a long time too. I was Austrian for a while. Um, <laughs> still got my oldest friends in Austria. But so I think if you think about, you know, we've got 400 families in motels at the moment. How the hell did that happen in this country? I, so the impact on those families there, for instance, will be... Um, how can you possibly realise the person that you are and become the person you're meant to be if you don't even have the safety of a family unit mm. or a shelter? <laughs> but um, you, you, the, the opportunities that we're losing as a country by not fixing this, and you're right, it's not just about bricks and mortars. It is about, to me, it's about belonging and community and whether that's in a nuclear family unit or or a, a different kind of family unit it's still family right and you need a family and um as you say that the the, the reason what why do we have such mental health problems in new mm. zealand why are we have why are we having such uh, uh you know an increase in loneliness and it is that sense of belonging and i do still think despite what you said judy i still think that that housing is the kind of kryptonite that pulls all of these themes together. It's not that it's the answer, but it's, yeah, it's, it's the, if, if we can focus on what the home is, and as you say, Thomas, have a home policy, um, then we might start making a difference.
It sounds like an excellent research project for the Maxim Institute. <laughs> oh, can I tell you one thing I did research before, seeing as I did all this research for the article, um, I found out that income tax was first introduced in New Zealand in 1890 and they didn't define income tax except to say that it's not income from capital, i.e. houses. Whereas in the US, at exactly the same time in history, they passed an act for a, to introduce a tax system, income tax, and they classed all income as equal. Hmm. So isn't it funny that the hmm. things that our um, ancestors and forebears did, well, hist <laughs> for hist good and bad, yeah, uh, affect yeah. us now. And, yeah. and we are living with the echoes of that history. Um, so Josie Pagani, I want to thank you for, uh, for this conversation. Uh, you have been um, challenging, you have been reflective, uh, you've been um, honest with us and, and, and often vulnerable and that takes courage. So uh, put your hands together for Josie and yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim, Mate Wa. Goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.